Welcome to Dr. Carl Grodd, a podcast where we explore what makes the secular sacred. Consider me your resident enthusiast, Jameson, and I'm joined today by uh, your resident theologian, Ben Burnside, soon to be Dr. Elbow Patches himself, very Reverend Dr. Ben Burnside. Got to let, let it roll off the tongue. Because it's bad luck. It's like three years away, four years away. Well, you know, that's a long time to okay. wait. Okay. Much like pre-orders, I want it now. So I'm just going <laughs> to live into the fact that I want it. Keep that, keep that excitement and adrenaline hyped. If you're joining us for the first time, we're now in episode three. It's not too late to jump on in and be a part of conversations where we tackle really exciting topics. Like today, you may have noticed we're talking about Monopoly materialism, and the appeal of euros. But as always, let's start our show by doing something completely different. So Burnside, what question do you have to ask me this week so I can pour upon you some of my infinite wisdom? Sure. Um, we are talking about Monopoly, so I was going to do a slightly Monopoly-themed question. Right. So there are 1.5 billion versions of Monopoly. Which one was the most significant for you? Part of me wants to challenge so you. 1.5 billion. So there's like that doesn't sound like an actual stat. That well, there's like, there's authorized versions of Monopoly, and then there's like Agiopoly and all these ones that you just find in stores. Well, I guess technically any child that Texas draws on a piece of paper in a preschool that could be an unofficial variant. It's the easiest game to theme. <laughs> so I was as a kid, I always played the classic version, and I was very against any other themes. I've always been kind of a purist, so I used to like get mad at my friends who had versions of Monopoly that weren't the original black and white. Mm. Uh, my grandmother had a really cool old copy from I think the 50s. It was like super old school Milton Bradley or, or Parker Brothers. That is Milton Bradley. No, wait, I'm getting confused on my folks. Who knows? The point is it was old. And it's probably like actual lead weights. Right. I'm pretty sure if you <laughs> ate the pieces, they would make you go deaf like Beethoven. Um, and marginally insane. But I, I wanted play off this a little bit because a version of Monopoly that really wasn't Monopoly, but it really was, was a game called Go for Broke, which took the concept of Monopoly instead of needing to accumulate a lot of money, you had to spend all your money, mm. which I thought as a kid was so fun because you had to go to the horse tracks and like bet on horses. And if you did well, you'd make a lot of money and you're like, oh no, I actually bet on the winning horse. And you were trying to like bet on the stock market. So you wanted to, you know, buy high and sell low and all of this stuff. It was a lot of fun. And for whatever reason, that sparked within me a, a general love for accounting that has persisted to this day. And if you lost all your money at the track, you go home and you get a wife is disappointed card. That's right. Wife is disappointed. Well, in that game, you really wanted your wife to go out and buy, you only bought two furs today, honey? Buy some more. Go. <laughs> you have to check it out. Go for broke. A really, uh, even, the, even the mascot of it looks like an overweight Monopoly guy. He's got, he looks like kind of like almost a walrusy Monopoly version. So, my question for you is kind of similar. We're talking about Monopoly and Euros, and I know that you are a big Euro game fan. And just before I ask my question, I want to clarify this in case you're chiming in and saying, I know about Monopoly. What the heck is a Euro game? All a Euro game typically means is a board game that has some kind of interplay of different systems. You're either interacting with a board, uh, you're interacting with some rows or columns, but the idea is you're going to generate some resource to exchange it for some other resource and to get some version of victory points. Mm -hmm. Unlike other board games where you're trying to like knock the other player out 
or you know you're trying to defeat another team that you know i think kind of like sports this is very much about i want to build up my little business and by the end of the game i want to have more points than you and every game is different called euro because it was made popular by european developers yes definitely the germans um but they had a huge influence on euro gaming right in fact if you're watching this uh and not just listening we have two excellent euros on the table uh twa and terra mystica we're actually going to be talking more about twa in a later review because i think it's a really underrated game and you get to say twa as much as you want to and it's it's t-r-o-y-e-s which is feels like the most french word of all time but it's twa so just there you go now back to the actual question i was going to ask you uh, eventually hey <laughs> that was a small rant that i brought back around i wanted yeah. to, to bring people into them what is it about euro games for you like the actual playing of them that you enjoy so much because you you That's are a question you're a lover of like all euros and i i like some but you definitely have the more wide-ranging palette so i've always been kind of interested to hear your take on why you enjoy them so much sure um i guess two main reasons the first is i like things that make you really think strategically um i like i it's very controversial with most people but i like longer games because you have more investment, you get to see things build up over time. And there's a lot of strategic uh, ways of decision making, you know, like you can in something like a simple game that's more on attacking people or say Monopoly, you can you understand the strategy and it's just the randomness of execution. But there's so many different strategies you can play. You can play the same game five different ways, focusing on different areas. And the other reason is I'm not really that big on competition. I like competition, but I'm not like a competitive person. Uh, so a lot of games are like ha gotchas. And Euros are very much almost solitaire with other people. <laughs> and so I do like that because you just you, you build your village. Um, maybe you do something to somebody else to kind of hinder them a little bit. But basically, it's you focusing on you. And at the end of it, even if I lose, I have still had the fun of trying and attempting new things. That's a good point. And I, I should have brought that up when we talked about your games. They A big marker of them is they typically, typically, it's funny that we're talking about because Twa is a little bit different in this regard, but they typically don't have a lot of confrontation. They right. are an opportunity for you to build up an engine and there's some slight blocking, like maybe I can stop you from taking or a choice or buying a specific card that you want. But in reality, I typically am not going to be able to come in and be like, oh, those are the resources. I'm going to take all of them from right. you. So you can plan out your next seven turns in your head if you want to. And you comment on something that I, I do appreciate, uh, although depending on the game, depends how long I can, I can apply my mind to it. But there is something about playing a two-hour game where you see a really nice story arc. Like you start with nothing. You kind of have all of this engagement and competition. You see all of these big engines kind of build and at the end there is something satisfying even when you maybe don't win you just look at what's in front of you and say man i've built this this thing yeah um and that kind of drives us into our topic today which is yeah let's get to it talking about uh, monopoly which has some euro feel although compared to the modern designs it feels like it's generations away which is makes sense it's from the early 1900s but there is that whole idea of, I think the the big thing we want to wrestle with today is why is it when we play Euros or we, if a lot of us have only played Monopoly, why is it that we love to own things? Why is it that we love to build our own mm -hmm. thing? Why is it that we like to possess 
kind of resources our money. Why do we love to charge rent? Right. Why do we love to build hotels and charge you ultra rent? Why do we love? Yeah, there's a whole lot. There's a whole list of questions, but there seems to be something in there, and that's something I think we want to talk about is materialism, uh, and we'll get a little bit more into what exactly that means in just a second. But that's kind of what intrigued us yeah. because there does seem to be this overlay, right? Of I know I should probably care about more important things, but right now all I want is those bread counters on the board. I want to have the best bakery. It's going to happen. And for whatever reason, now because I'm sitting across from Burnside, my bakery will be better than his bakery. So help me God. You know, that's but there's that there's that that kind of itch yeah. that rises up within us. And uh, I accidentally hit my face on my microphone, which I didn't know was possible, but I just did that. That was incredible. And if you're watching it from home, you can see that. So Jameson, how did Monopoly come about? Right. So Monopoly. <laughs> You may find it interesting that the history of Monopoly kind of feels a little bit like a uh, meta-commentary on capitalism mm-hmm. overall. It was developed uh, by a woman, and I wanted to write down her name. Lizzie Maggie in the early 1900s, and she actually designed it to, in order to show and teach uh, all ages, but especially children, kind of the shortfalls of just buying totally into capitalism and what, right. what it would kind of infect in your community. It was as like a warning. Yes. So there's actually two versions of the game. It's called the Landlord's Game. Uh, okay. Was, I didn't know but, that. Uh, the, there was two versions. One was to show you how if you cooperate, you could actually get more money. And then the other version that became the popular one that kind of was picked up and, and sold by Parker Brothers was this whole idea of, no, you can actually like buy properties, mm. charge rent. But you see it very much if you, if you know its origins of the Landlord's Game. You see that in the game, right? Because you're moving around, you're literally buying properties, and you're charging people rent when they land on it. Uh, what's interesting is it was kind of unheralded until I think it, the story goes it was a dinner party um, where another designer kind of heard about this. And so they decided they would kind of write their own rules and they developed it. And then it turned out that Parker Brothers bought that from them and then realized that this had been designed actually previously. So they, they like bought it out from under her for some ridiculously small amount of money like oh, wow. two or $300. And so then it was like, Oh, you, you want to sell me boardwalk half price. All right. And then, you know, a decade, decades later, they've made millions of dollars and millions right. of copies. Uh, it is inescapable to say that monopoly has shaped the board game industry. In fact, it is kind of a joke in the board game community that if you tell someone you play board games, what's the first thing they say, Hey Ben, do you play board games? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, do you play board games like monopoly? I love Monopoly. Right. And it's really hard. It's really hard for board gamers because we're like, we we don't, we don't play, we don't play a Monopoly. Well, but that that's kind of the history. But and what's and what but what's interesting is it is not necessarily an easy game in some ways. Like you have to to measure out when you buy property, you have to have board control, you have to figure out when it's the right time to invest in different buildings, which increase the rent. I will say what's interesting is I think almost no one plays by the rules of Monopoly. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is that anyone who knows me says, I always say, like, because people complain that Monopoly is a three, four, five, six, seven, eight hour game. I'm like, no, if you play with the included rules, always do an auction, do the right mortgage rules, it's not that long of a game. Right. So one of the, one of the most, played, most misplayed rules, if I could say that two times fast and not trip over myself, is right. If you land on a space... So this is all of you out there that are listening that play Monopoly. Please play by the rules. 
If you land on the space and you don't want to buy it, you have to put it up for auction. Yes, which somebody was, has to buy it. Which was supposed, in that version, was supposed to to show how the real estate market works, where you constantly will have competition to buy things low, flip them, turn them into properties. We see that all out. In fact, HGTV is full of house flippers, right, that are essentially doing the same thing. You don't want your house? Let me buy it cheap, flip it, sell it for more. Right. So I find that interesting. But that brings us into kind of a bigger conversation on why then do you think Monopoly has such a hold really on kind of the American mind as far as gaming is concerned? I mean, it's like qu the quintessential American board game. Right. So what are, what are some things you see in that, you know, maybe related to something like materialism, which is in the title? Uh, perhaps that might come up. I don't know. <laughs> well, just looking anecdotally at my own life, whenever I do see a different version of Monopoly, as we talked about earlier, I always flip it around to the box because I'm always curious to see what is Boardwalk, right? Because Boardwalk is the most expensive, most exclusive uh, property on the board. So in every franchise, whether that's Star Wars or Doctor Who or The Simpsons, I always want to see what do the creators think is worth the absolute most. Yeah, what's the pinnacle of success for now, your Now, if you've played Monopoly a lot, you know that hitting Boardwalk is actually not the best strategic decision. No, it's not. <laughs> but it, it's like, you know, it's like having a high rise in Miami or something or some vacation land. It's, it has lots of grammar and it says $500. It's 500 right? I think. I probably should have memorized some of the prices. It changes. If, it changes in some variations. If that's wrong, I apologize. But for you diehard Monopoly enthusiasts, please challenge us on colors, pricing, well, and in, tell us about your favorite. In the classic trilogy Star Wars version I played, it was five hundred credits. So. Oh wow, well, that's way different. <laughs> I don't know what credits translate to. I'm not part of the Galactic Federation, so. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, materialism at its base is. Uh, a definition that what matters most is translates to the things that we have. So if you're playing Monopoly, you're not doing good if you just have utility company and one railroad. Right. You gotta you gotta expand, right? You gotta, you gotta expand. expand. You gotta have those matching colors. You get if you get to use the hotels, it's all about the things you hold, how much cash you have, how much power you have, that whole thing. And and yes, it's ironic that the whole purpose of the game is to show how this system of economy is completely oppressed, <laughs> but at the same time. So um, well, and to that point, the way you win is to have money while everyone else is broke, right? You know, like you want to drive everyone out of, out of business. You literally, the goal is to drive everyone into bankruptcy, and you still maintain the properties, right? Right. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Obsession with materials and money, as opposed to the other things in life, is not new to our society or even the past 400, 500 years. Um, it's something that Jesus talks about all the time. Uh, most, or not most, a lot of the things he says, a lot of the parables he says are all about money and how do we manage service in our lives. So there's a famous thing of saying, you cannot serve two masters, um, God and mammon, mammon being the personification of money wealth power um you cannot pursue both of these things at the same time he tells the the parable about the rich man who has so much that he has to build um more barns just to hold all of his stuff and then he just dies one night yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, god comes to him and says you fool you will die tonight right i actually brought my bible <laughs> there you <laughs> go to remind you. but 
Um, I thought we were just going to free, free reign. We're pretty sure this is what Jesus says in a parable. This is the this is the Burnside Doring translation. We want to give. <laughs> so, the obsession with having possessions and that tying to um, personal wealth, I mean personal value, is not a new concept. But I think it has taken on a special um, focus as recent times. There's been a shift away of thinking of of us living in society, what makes that valuable? What makes that important? You know, we like to think that it's the ideals of we 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 bound together for freedom or for the American dream to empower one another. All these like positive ways of thinking, which are are good, but in reality, um, there are lots of other ways of looking at it. And when it comes to like materialism, a focus on really the baseness of humans of saying. Humans, without rules or without anything to inspire us or hold us back, are vicious, are only looking to take from other people. Right. You know? It's a zero-sum game. Life is about what can be had, and there's not enough to go around, and so you have to kind of compartmentalize or section off what you need against someone else. Right. Yeah. So when I, think of it, when I think of that, I think about Thomas Hobbes, who basically said the social contract that the only thing that makes society work is that we all agree not to steal, murder, and kill from each other. Right. And because because we agree to that, that's oh, why man. it works. What a great quote. It, it is both, it feels very true and also is very depressing. The only reason that this exists is because I don't want to shoot you currently. But if that's your viewpoint, which it is for a number of political people, right? Um, there's, no re- there's no reason to see relationships or our jobs or even our faith as anything other than a means to an end. Right. You know, we know the old adage, don't pe- treat people as a means to an end. But if you were so obsessed with possession of goods and that the, the brands that you wear, the things that you own, the car you drive is how you define your own self-worth. And you're really in that spot, not just, oh, people say that, but that is really how you actually think. Then the people you choose to hang out with, even your family, becomes a resource for you to use right well yeah so i to kind of maybe capture and summarize what you're saying it sounds like if you if you really take uh materialism and we'll talk about in just a second how there's really two ways to talk about this and in fact there's kind of a humorous story about how Bernstein had to clarify how we were were talking we're talking about materialism but when it comes to thinking about materialism on the economic side, you really have to be careful that you're not turning everything into a transaction. Right. And I think a lot of people, even when I hear them talk, you know, to bring back a monopoly, it kind of feels like they're having a monopoly deal. Is it worth my time, energy, and money to do this? Should I buy this? What's the return? What's the return? And yeah. I, I think if that's how you're going to measure all interaction, you're going to be found wanting in some situations because most of the things that matter the you know, as, as social creatures, most of the things that matter the most to us cannot be measured in a sliding scale. I can't look at you and say, well, your friendship is worth $900 today. So as long as it's below that threshold, that's a good deal. If you want $1,000, your friendship isn't worth that. So it's not a good deal. <laughs> I'm going to wait for when you when our friendship goes on sale. And, and right. me saying that sounds ridiculous. And yet, maybe if you look at my behavior, sometimes it may feel like, am I, am I valuing Ben on this kind of like sliding scale? I would never do that, Burnside. I really <laughs> appreciate you. Well, even even the jobs we get to have, right? So we're we're pastors. We can go and spend a day just calling and talking to people. Is there anything like from the business world 
that's we are producing or accomplishing. Right. It's all investing in relationships that has no, at the end of the day, there's nothing I can show that's saying, this is what I did today. Right. And so according to the material world, we've accomplished nothing. Right. But we're yeah. lucky enough to have people who support us in doing that and think it's a good job. Right. To do. And you could get into, if we were going to really drill down into that, you know, there's service industries in general kind of work off of this weird premise of I'm providing something to you that has an undisclosed value, meaning that, mm -hmm. you know, what is something worth? You know, we're kind of collectors. So if we go try to collect video games or board games, it, sometimes it doesn't matter what it costs to produce. It's how much you want to pay for it. You know? Oh, yeah. And so that 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 is an interesting it's thing. It's not actually worth that much, but that's what people will pay. But I like, I like what you're saying is <laughs> we could approach this as ministers and say, you know, every person is worth my time based on how to tithe, based on what they give, based on the energy it requires of me, based on how positive the conversation would be, based on whether or not I like them. And some of those things are directly economic, but all of them are pretty economic. And what I'm saying is kind of back to my original point. I'm starting to value folks on what they bring to me or what it brings to the organization. And I like what you said is if we really do this faithfully, mm -hmm. we're doing it because it it doesn't need to be defended. It is a beautiful thing unto itself. Right. You know, relationship is worthwhile. It doesn't need to have a numerical tag attached to it. But if we're honest, and maybe if I'm honest, that can be hard to to believe sometimes. I don't know what it is because I love what you said. There's almost something in me that says, I agree with that intellectually. Mm -hmm. But I know in practice, you could look at someone by behavior and say, Jameson, you're not living into it. Right. Or they can use that defense whenever they're actually not doing it to the standard we would expect. So they say, oh, I'm, I'm living my way in which it's like, no, you're not actually doing it. So where's that line right. that we draw? Right. No, and it's, I think the reason people have such strong reactions sometimes to conversations on money specifically, if you check out Facebook or Twitter or any social media, you know, people are, are so, so complacent and they have no opinions. Uh, there's not really anything expressed out there. I don't know about you. I find social media kind of dull sometimes. There's no, there's no firestorms. You must be following uh, one person. I think I'm actually just following uh, the Twitter feed for Xanax. Uh, so that's why it's maybe a little down. But I think one of the reasons you have such Often arguments are expressed in terms of finances or ec economics or what I kind of like the, the stress or pressure over something like unemployment benefits and who should get what and how should the government figure this out. It's because what it's really pressing on is our feelings of value and security. Mm -hmm. And I think we feel challenged if we're honest that perhaps this is showing us we shouldn't be valuing this in the same way that we are. And yet we're still going to double down. <laughs> yeah. So that's the hard part, right, is I can intellectually acknowledge this. But what do I do if I say? I probably shouldn't do that, but this is a one-time exception that it's okay. I'm going to double double down in the opposite direction. It's kind of like saying, I shouldn't run back into this burning building. But you know, I did leave something inside there, so I'll, I'll be right back. Yeah. As, like, it's not to say that material... We know that our our purpose is not derived from material goods, our value, but we still have to interact with the world and money because that's necessary for who and what we are. Yeah, it's it it needs to be in its proper place. I think right, there's we no way to escape it. Is right. what I'm saying. No, that's a good point. And it, I don't want to be clear here. We're not showing up to, you know, say blow up capitalism, bring in communism. No, but we are saying that we need to make sure that even if we believe in a free and open market, we should acknowledge that the market is not always free and open in all ways. Um, 
and that even if even if it was, we still need to be making sure that our value system is not slowly being warped by this subtle desire to say, well, obviously, if I make more money, that's a good thing, so it's more valuable, and that that kind of slowly seeps into your way mm -hmm. way of thinking. Are there any other kind of ramifications of materialism that you've kind of been reflecting on? Um, well, as we said earlier, initially in the show notes when we were doing this, I went down the route of philosophical materialism. So I got this text. I'm going to read it to you because it's so brilliant. And uh, this is going to be... Don't, the, the don't pull back the cover. No, they need the, to know because this is one of the, the great mystery. nerdy debates. So I was just telling them, hey, I got the script ready. I'm ready to talk about Monopoly. I'm going to come prepared to talk about some of your games. I'm going to show up to kind of be the board game stuff. I'll leave some of the the deeper comments of materialism to you. So he says, what, what philosophical response will you have to materialism? Idealism or something else? I wanted to talk about critical realism, but I didn't want to step over you if you were going to talk about it as well. I got that text and I'm like, I don't know if he and I are talking about the yeah. same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, what we were doing is he was lovingly, because he's a great guy, saying, Jameson wants to talk about Monopoly in a way I don't understand, but I'm willing to roll with it. But I'm going to prepare for this. Because as I said, there's two branches, right? And right. I, I don't, I'm going to explain the branches and hand it back to you. So we're, we've been talking about materials from an economic sense of literally materials that you invest in to buy value. But very right. closely linked to that, but slightly bifurcated, is a conversation on if materials are the only thing that exists, how does that influence, from a philosophical standpoint, your ethics, your truth statements? Yeah. Like, where does your foundation come from? So some of those fancy words I used, which... Again, I'm always impressed by Burnside because every time we have these conversations, even though I've read it, it makes me feel out of shape and I need to read some more. <laughs> is that's what he's going to talk about now is more of that philosophical. What is it? How do we take maybe what we know about economic materialism and then start to really shine a light on if we play by, if we play by those rules, to not be tongue in cheek, but kind of be literal. How does that influence other behaviors that we yeah. have? And I won't go too far down the well. But basically, the question is, what counts as real and what counts as truth? Um, what counts as experience, essentially? So materialism says, from a philosophical standpoint, the only thing that exists is the things we see, the things we can um, see, touch, taste, hear. Um, that's what counts, right? So it's a step away from what we call idealism that allows things outside of our sensual reality to exist. Now, if you're doing science, that makes sense because you're, you're literally interacting with the things we can see. Um, but when it comes to living our lives or thinking theologically, thinking about what counts as truth, um, it really reduces something down. So let's use something uh, common like justice, right. right? Justice is an idea that exists and has power but is not tangible it is a concept right sure so if you were a materialist justice is just words to dictate action but it doesn't it's not something that exists in the true sense of the word and so if you're if you are only focused on the world that's why i was saying earlier your actions will be more towards i'm going to manipulate the system the world is just a language game that I need to manipulate to make everything work in my favor because nothing really matters because even down to the thoughts we have, because if you're a true materialist, your concept of a soul doesn't exist. Right. You're just a bunch of atoms <laughs> and brain firing synapses. So 
Not biochemical flashback. Is I like that description. So not not that I mean we could go much more in depth in a different episode, but just just to say, um, I think they go hand in hand. In you step away from these concepts such as you know even happiness, joy, um, God Himself, and if you're in a material world, the only way you can argue that God exists is to say He exists somewhere else. <laughs> but idealism says God doesn't exist in a place at all; it's other, right. Uh, I, so that was an awesome breakdown of a topic that if you get really into, you can really go down the rabbit hole. There's a bunch of you books <laughs> to read. Uh, I was I was brushing up on my planting guide because I said I'm going to drop that in. But he's okay. a, an excellent scholar out of Notre Dame that did a lot of work on this. And what's interesting is this has been a very big point in conversation in the academic world over the last 40 years, really with planting and some other guys who for a while, you know, the, Christianity, especially in America, has always had this give and take with science where it struggled. People have either felt like it's folded in too closely, and you've kind of gone to the Von Harnack kernel of truth. Fine, then we'll just almost, I I wouldn't say that Von Harnack was a materialist, but he was as close as you could be and still be faithful, right? I mean, he kind of believed, he kind of believed, he believed in God, but but his, his conclusions led to very different ramifications. And so what the church did for a while is just to, kind of to overreact and say, well, fine, if we want to be faithful, then we're not going to use science. And then we're going to kind of distance ourselves and we're going to say that we have a different yeah. kind of truth and they, well, have, they have a truth. And One side completely accepted everything that was going and took away the parts of the faith that right. didn't compat. And then the other side just retreated and said science isn't true. Right. And then you have people like Plantica show back up and say, no, actually, I want to steer directly into the middle of this conversation and say that not only is does Christianity have a truth, but it has a truth that is grounded in science and reality. Like, and I want to, the, the fancy word for this is epistemology, but it essentially just means what, what is your claim on truth? Mm-hmm. How, what, is your, what is the center of kind of your argument that you can, it's kind of like that, you know, we all feel those things that we think are kind of understood, that they just, they just are. And that's kind of epistemology. There's something within you that says, like, this is my foundation that I'll build off of. What Plantigan wanted to do is, in a very abstract, philosophical way, as only high-minded academics can do, is to prove in a vacuum that Christianity has the greatest truth claim. Mm-hmm. And, and to prove intellectually against other ways of yeah. thinking. And so that's really been a big argument that you didn't know was raging in the academy for the last 40 years. So welcome to the battle lines. But the, the thing is, even though that's very nerdy, if we could boil it down, I think all of us would agree we've experienced some form of that argument where we've we've encountered friends or family or maybe even within our own minds. Yeah, I know what the Bible says, but mm-hmm. this is a truth I'm going to live into. So implicit truth is what I was looking for earlier, but I couldn't I couldn't pull it out. And, and I appreciate what you're doing, Ben, is you're trying to draw us back in to say, all right, well, let's carry out that thought process to a natural conclusion. So the idea of justice is justice a majority vote. Is it just justice is whatever a country deems as justice? So then justice would be, well, this country is a dictatorship. Therefore, justice is yeah. whatever the dictator says. Or this is, a, this, is a, this is a democracy. But sometimes we know in democracies we don't have justice because a smaller majority can make decisions that affect everyone else. And we still say it's an injustice. But how, how, yeah. would, how would you measure that without some kind of 
ideal truth, without some kind of capital T truth, it really j is just, even justice becomes an arbitrary placeholder for meaning. It's just, do you agree? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's just, it's just words that you use to manipulate the situation. Right. Or it can be. It can be, sorry. And, and, and again, we're not, <laughs> we're not trying to knock down any government or system specifically. We're just trying to at least open our minds to the prospect of what are the real ramifications of this way of thinking. It's not, we're passionate about this because I think Ben and I both understand it's not trivial. Like this, but materialism itself is probably one of the great defining ways, especially in America, that we think. Yeah. And if we're not careful, we can passively accept some of the truths of materialism into our faith or other narratives, whatever those may be for yeah. you. And I just think that we should always be willing to challenge them yeah. and ask more sincere questions. Yeah, try playing Monopoly where you're constantly giving money to the other players to bail them out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the psychology of generosity is fascinating <laughs> to me, yeah. It, I'm going to give you all my money so I can stop playing this game. <laughs> that sounds like, a, or like a great board game where it's like, you know, we just call it humility. You have to prove that you're the most humble by giving away all your possessions. And then you would be crowned the most humble. That sounds like a really healthy way to go. It about would last, it. I think, two minutes. Right. <laughs> you could write the great American novel, Humility, How I Achieved It and How You Can Too. Uh, <laughs> or how to give people money with uh, getting around various tax laws and restrictions. That sounds fun. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, as he's stirring <laughs> the, the beehive. Right. But... I, I hope in what you're hearing is the beginnings of conversations that you could have, which is just to stop and think if there's a policy I'm hearing on the news, if there's something I'm reading on Facebook, am I willing to at least pause and say, why is this upsetting me? What, what is actually at stake here? Can I be self-aware enough to actually engage in the dialogue? Or if I'm not careful, am I just getting swept away in whatever the implicit truth is and just accepting that it's right when in reality it could be some form of misinformation that I've programmed in that I'm not willing to program yeah, out. Yeah, or counter to what you actually value. Right. You know, it's interesting to me. I, I try to never be critical. That's not the right way to say it, because critical just means like you're evaluating what someone says. I try to limit my judgment and how I engage with people to the worldview they express. And so one of the worldviews I know the best is Christianity, just because I've studied it You've invested in it. Heck, you got you had so much fun. You're going back for another pass. <laughs> and one of the things that always surprises me is people will claim some part of the Bible, but then when it comes to money, they'll they'll just have this completely different, outspoken yeah. stance. And I'm like, but there's also this scripture here that kind of like you can't serve two masters. Don't build up extra barns. You know, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. And I and I don't think that Jesus is saying that money is inherently evil what he's saying is it may be one of the greatest temptations that leads us yeah. into negative relationship because you can't avoid it right it's 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 the same way we could talk about drinking or alcohol or any substance it's like if you're not willing to accept that there are reckless ways to use it then you're in for a world of hurt somewhere along, along the line yeah you know? absolutely Anything else that you got out of your your deep dive into the exciting philosophical world of materialism? That you'd I like mean, to... I could go on, but I think that's probably sufficient. That's it. <laughs> I was prepared. <laughs> I had to look up things, spell check my notes several times to make sure. Why don't you? I would like you to talk a little bit about critical realism, or just maybe explain it more. Because sure. 
Sure. Because I do think, and what I'll do for you, friends, is as your resident enthusiast, I'll let this this brainy man talk, and then we'll try to frame it and bring it home, even though he'll do a great job of explaining it. But I do think critical realism is a helpful way to think for all of us. And mm -hmm. so if we can talk about what it is, I think we could apply it in a kind of a helpful way. So why don't, why don't you lay down what, I, what I'll try to pick up? Well, um, when, you're, when you're making up an, an argument or you're setting up an uh, experiment in the realm of academics or whatever, you have to have clear rules of what counts as true, what counts as false. All critical realism seeks to do is developed in the philosophy of science, but it's also been used in theological endeavors. It seeks to say that what whatever we experience as as real frames what constitutes the truth for us. So I'll use a very simple example. If you believed in ghosts and you wanted to live in a world in which that is your real authentic experience, then critical realism would allow you to say, my realm, I, I experience ghosts. I've, I've, I've had that experience. That counts as true for me. Now, if Jameson has never seen a ghost and absolutely says it's false, that's completely fine because that's his experience. So his form of truth would be ghosts. Don't Sorry, exist. Paranormal Activity is a bad movie, Burnside, and you're not going to be able to backdoor to this conversation. It was used by um, a scholar, Andrew Root, to explain um, why he wanted to allow people's experience with, with God to not just be their personal stories, but to be included in his kind of understanding of how the faith works into theology. So, you know, they had a direct experience with God. You can't verify that scientifically. You can't universalize it. You can't recreate it. But it was a, a people's actual real experiences, and he wanted that to count, in a sense, right. in his book. So critical realism basically says, if you've directly experienced it, it is enough to count it as true for you. Um, and now it's not complete relativism. It's not everyone makes up their own truth. Uh, it's, it's more of a way of seeing the world through different uh, perspectives. So in a Christian perspective, what we count as true is going to be distinctly different from someone who um, is not Christian or another faith or someone who even different would be if you're atheist or if you're agnostic. All of those are going to have different ways of viewing the world and cultural lenses as well. We value stuff um, that other cultures don't value or hold to be real or true. And that's, okay. and it's, it's, meant to explain the ways in which we are so different and interact with the world in a different way. If what I define as true is different from how you define truth, we're going to really struggle with conversation instead of right. just assuming that everyone should um, operate according to the same truth. Right. One way that I've thought about this when I've read it that may be helpful for you that are listening is I think about critical realism as trying to understand if we're attached to the same tree sometimes, why are our branches so different? Yeah. Um, or if we're not even attached to the same tree, why are the conversations so hard? Because there's two kinds of dialogues, right? You, if you're on the, let's just use Christianity. If you're on the Christian tree, we agree on some truths most likely, but we know there are many aspects of conversation where we, we are in very different parts of the tree. And some people don't even think that the limb above them or below them is part of the tree. Yeah. You know? 
Uh, and then if you have someone who's not even a part of that tree, they're a whole, you know, you're an oak and they're a pine or however that works, you know, you could drive that metaphor into the ground. To your point, it's if you want to have a healthy dialogue, how do you bridge that gap? You know, how do you acknowledge not that, and I like that you pointed out, we're not arguing for relativism, which I think is a classic issue really with materialism in general is if you go down the materialist route, it is really just, it's, everything's relative. Yeah. But what this is trying to do is to say, how do you take personal experience and bring it into dialogue with something that is a greater truth? Mm -hmm. And because it's, it's almost to me like your interpretation of what you know to be a deeper truth. Yeah. But I love the idea that critical is literally in the name because what we always need to do is to be aware of that, to say, this is my reality to some extent, but also am I willing to still experience, discuss, understand how it could shift, it must shift. You know, it must change. There's a certain amount of uh, a philosophical humility. I can't think of a better word, um, but that's why I wanted you to bring it up. Yeah, I, I think for some folks, especially folks in the church, it can seem scary to start questioning some things. It can seem scary if you start to say that we don't just know exactly what God means when God says something. Yeah, you know that. Truth needs to be so unassailable. And in some ways, I don't think any of, nothing we've said today says that we don't think that God is true. What we're trying to argue is our understanding of what we mean by that is what we keep working on because we're not. Right. You may not, you may not realize this. We are not God. Uh, or at least we are, we are only gods in our own mind. Um, that's, well, according to you, that is my reality. I believe that I am God. Therefore, all of my lived experience is telling me that. I was, yes. That's a, that's a horrible nerdy the joke. The problem is no one else shares their reality, so it's just a subjective Well, then I am like thing. that small weed in your garden that thinks that he's all the bee's knees and wants to get everyone else to come hang out with him. That's, that's a whole different thing. You don't, <laughs> you don't get to have your own philosophy because of that. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, this was a lot of kind of good conversation, and I think we're going to tie it back around to, all right, so we've opened up the door to materialism. We've talked a little bit about critical Realism. We've talked about how do we begin to understand the truths that we hold to be self-evident, and maybe some of those that aren't as self-evident as they should be, and some of them that can. Just quote the Declaration of Independence. I, well, I guess that is something that's been beaten into me, so maybe I did that subconsciously. I was not attempting to, although I, I am very, one of us is very patriotic. Uh, <laughs> but we come back to the idea of Eurogames. Monopoly, why is it so special to us because i think there is something that is enjoyable this is what i get there's something enjoyable about playing the game mm -hmm. but what i would encourage all of us to think is can we leave that game on the table to just be a thing that we enjoy yeah when does monopoly or the euro game become our reality you know when when, when does it and, 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 I, and i again i feel like i'm beating this metaphor into the ground but it's just such a good one but it really has helped me to think like what do i what do i enjoy thinking through as kind of like a fun thing to do, yeah. but then how do I actually act out there in the real world? Right. I mean, in many ways, it's the uh, the age old like in games you you exhibit certain behaviors that would be unacceptable in another world. I mean, it's the same argument of playing violent video games or whatever. Because like Monopoly, you um, you essentially get up a whole bunch of money and you take pleasure, you take joy, you take extreme joy in putting your fellow people in bankruptcy and walking watching them walk sad away whenever they have no money left right 
and other board games require you to like let, let's say they require you to lie or deceive actively and it's getting you to do this but it's it's getting you to do behavior that in the outside world is looked down upon but at the gaming table it's just good fun whatever i i don't know what the answer is to that other than i really enjoy it well my you know, <laughs> I, I guess my point is i don't think there's a there's nothing wrong with those kind of games there's nothing wrong with being a little sly or deceitful at the table what i'm saying is though if we're honest can we reflect enough to can we be self-aware about the fact that when we when we play twa later you know when we play a euro game i'm not going to leave here and think you know what i'm going to go colonize like people <laughs> Europe. why is it so much easier for, for me to leave the rules of twa on the table yeah than it is for some of my other yeah. implicits and i think that's that's the self-awareness i i yearn for all of us to have is are there some rules we play by that if we're honest, we need to leave on the table. Mm-hmm. And then we need to step back and say, what, what does my actual, what is my actual truth calling me to? You know, for us, that, that's what we shared from scripture. There's a Christian mandate for how we should treat people. Right. And so part of critical realism is I need to peel away my lived experience of that to take off the things that are not helpful and to kind of live into the deeper reality of what my experience has done. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a hundred different ways we could we could talk about that. We could probably do a whole show on what it means to kind of like what is the power of experience and, and growth. But I really appreciate you leading us through that. That was a lot of terminology. Uh, and now your next cocktail party, you're going to sound really sophisticated. You're like, well, <laughs> clearly your epistemology is lacking, my dear friend. You claim truth, but show me where does that truth arise? From where does that truth arise? Anyways, I try to get fancy there. From whence? From whence? Oh, from whence? It's not too often you get to say that. Oh, that was fun. That was a good conversation. At the end of every show, we like to talk about something that we're looking forward to that's coming up, just to to point it out to you. Uh, Something coming up in the headlines, something we're personally interested in um, that could just be an enjoyment we're looking forward to have. So, Ben, I I was nice and let you go first at the top of the hour, so... I would love to go first. Now, oh, okay. Okay. I am super pumped about getting to play some Twa in just a little bit. <laughs> I can say that it's going to happen really soon, like as soon as this podcast is over. No, there's just something about... I miss playing board games with people. It's hard. I've been soloing a lot. And so the fact we're going to get to play something today, I'm like, that's that's pretty awesome. Just to like to do. So yeah. I look forward to that. Oh, yeah. Um, once again, I'm not going to follow the rules because this came out a very long time ago, but I finally got around to watching the HBO Watchmen series. Well, I tried to tailor it today. I wasn't saying it's something you're just looking forward to you've done or I wasn't trying to put time on it. So I was trying to modify the rules based off your feedback. Wow. Uh, I have some critical realism I'd like to share Uh with you later. So anyway, I finally watched the show, The Watchmen. I put off watching it for a very long time because I I told myself I wanted to watch the movie again. The problem is I didn't really like the movie, so I could never convince myself to do it. So finally, I just gave up and said, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> and I really liked it. It's very good. I need to check that out. Yeah, well, it was controversial because it, it brings up a lot of, you know, issues in racial history that were controversial. But I think it was very imaginative the way they did it. Sure. It takes place 40-something years after the original. And it was just really well done. 
it made me excited. Yeah, I look forward to it. I need to sit down and watch. It's a show that I want to like watch, but uh, sadly, my, my TV programming has been selected by a different individual in my household of late. Not my wife, but the young man that I live with, my son. So my, uh, my exposure has mostly been Disney+. Plus. So I sit across. Blessings uh, on your journey, son. I, I know. I sit over here very envious of what you are allowed to do. <laughs> That's been our show today. I hope that you've enjoyed our conversation on monopoly, on materialism, starting kind of that door to understanding how do we uh, shed some of those layers to get down to the things that, we, that really matter to us and how do we be consistent and how we live that out. And we look forward to the next time that we can gather together. My name is Jameson. I've been your resident enthusiast. And I'm Ben, resident theologian. <laughs>